Welcome to the show, everybody. I got to give a quick shout out. Thank you for the hookup. I was in Louisville and I stopped into, this is the second time I stopped into Weightless Float Center, said hi to my good friend Greg and I, I got a float in and it's been wonderful. I've I've talked about floating on this podcast and other podcasts, sensory deprivation. I think it's amazing. And once in a while, some good people in the float community hook me up. One of the perks of the job. So I want to keep that going. So I'm throwing them some plugs. I I also recently was in uh, um, uh, Sanctuary Float and Spa in uh, Minnetonka. Minnesota outside of Minneapolis and float Madison and Madison of course and I really really like floating they aren't uh none of these places are paying me to say this I do get hooked up once in a while which is awesome and encouraged if there's float people listening but I really recommend it to anyone uh, anywhere you're at if there's a float place nearby at least try it twice it took me like three times to really i liked it i liked it from the very first float but it took me three times to like really feel like like oh this is what this is how to float this is uh you know i felt really comfortable and not every float has been good i've had a couple that just like didn't go my way right after like I think that like the day or two days after the 2016 election I had a float it did not help my stress in any way and uh you know so they don't they're not always perfect but I've had um overall so many more great floats than I've had um that you know, or like mediocre or whatever. But the main thing is, is I guess I've kind of like really, my main thing is from a creative point of view, they're really relaxing and, and can be good for, you know, therapeutic reasons and stuff. But I tend to usually figure out some sort of make some new connection, figure out some sort of thing, have like a creative spark and like maybe something to do with the podcast or something like that. This time when I was in a weightless float center in Louisville, I don't know if this is going to happen, but I got out. And by the way, if you go and float, get there early and and chill and everything a little bit. They, they usually have like a nice little area, especially weightless float has a fantastic one. And save time for afterwards so you can maybe like journal a little bit or have some tea or whatever. I highly recommend doing that. I also, once you get used to it, recommend with maybe experimenting with some substances. <laughs> I'm probably not supposed to. If I was getting paid to uh, to plug floating, they would definitely not allow me to officially go on record as saying that. And you don't want to like mention it walking in the door. Just do your thing and uh, work <laughs> work your way in there. Um, but my cool idea this time. I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but this, this was just this wonderful, great little lounge area. Um, and, 
and I talked with uh, uh, Greg at Weightless Float about potentially maybe doing a live Here We Are podcast there in the future, like a really cool, intimate, just like 10 listeners in Louisville or something um, or the surrounding area. And it's a, a small space, and but it's really casual and just has this amazing vibe and having like a little kind of private party in a float place I think it would be really cool I'm always looking to try to like just do some different stuff outside of the norm um, and see kind of what comedy and edutainment and science communication and and philosophy and those kinds of things can be in kind of a live uh, um, space. So, so then it just got me thinking about all of the different possibilities that I could do with it. So I thought I'd have like, you know, an episode about mindfulness and meditation and that sort of thing in a float center that I would get a little film crew. We were, we were kind of talking about it a little bit. I don't know if it's going to happen. My inclination is to think that I, I probably will work this out eventually. I think it's a really cool idea and it'd be worth trying. So, but that that's the sort of thing I always come up with, like, not always, but I, I often come up with uh, with something like that. And this one, I, I was substance-free um, on, on this one too. And so, I mean, I've had, <laughs> I've had some pretty phenomenal i'll just say i did it in california where marijuana is legal there and i've had a a small edible and a little bit of weed going into um a float center before and my goodness that really i'm not even a weed guy and really took things to a interesting and amazing level and so yeah um that's just my my plug for floating generally um anywhere that's in your area i'm just all for mindfulness it is you're gonna look at the prices and then think it's a little expensive it is you know that's the overhead prices and everything when you think about it um you know you can only have so many people in these places at a time blah, blah blah but um i just think that you know when i'm coming up with an idea that is worth much more than the cost of a float would be to me, then it, it just seems to make um, all sorts of financial sense when you look at it from that perspective. If I was if I was in one place, if I, which I never am, but some of these places have like a month-long membership, and I would just get a month-long um, thing, and you know, whether it's like two a week or unlimited or whatever, and just go as much as you can. It's my understanding that, like, once you've kind of trained that muscle, you fall into that um, state faster and faster and get more out of each float. But another, another tip for me maybe not your maybe for your first time do a 60 minute float that's kind of the standard um the other standard in some places is 90 minute i prefer a 90 minute float i've done two hours great on a substance but outside of that i i don't think i think two hours is a little much for me i'm a 90 minute float guy and so so yeah that's all i I wanted to give you those tips super cool thing to check out 
very appreciative to everybody that has ever hooked me up with a float. Thank you very much. Looking forward to doing more of it in the future. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am talking with associate professor at the University of California, Davis, and he also runs the Attraction and Relationships Research Laboratory there. Dr. Paul Eastwick joins me today. Thank you, Paul, for coming on the show. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. We just did stand-up science here in Sacramento last night. That was so much fun. So, it, well, well, you know, because I already told you, I, I shared with the listeners, because I like to overshare, uh, <laughs> last week in, in the intro of the episode, I just went through a breakup recently, right, and right. I have, uh, I'm... I'm handling it a little too well. Like I, I feel bad for how well I'm handling, and um, and but I have all of this, all of this new, all these thoughts that I've been having about relationships, and I and science really influences how I perceive my own relationships and everything else. And so I have all these things that I've been wanting uh, uh, to say about it. And then I had a relationships person on Stand Up Science last night. So I got to go off for like 25 minutes about Yeah, it's good. Very fortunate. <laughs> yeah, so it worked out really well. So uh, that's a little bit of, of uh, me and my uh uh, the where I'm at right now. Uh, let, let's give listeners a little bit of, of a background. Uh, how did you get into what you do and eventually now running an attraction and relationships research lab? Yeah, so I got started in learning about the science of relationships and how you study relationships. Just before going to grad school, I was a research assistant for Niall Bolger and Pat Trout. These are a couple of relationship researchers. They were both at NYU at the time. So I worked there, got to see their approaches, the way that they would intensively follow couples over time, try to understand support processes in couples, stress processes in couples. And I thought this approach was fascinating and... I had always been a little bit more interested in how people form relationships in the first place. So when I went to graduate school, I went to Northwestern, uh, and I was there from uh, 03 to 09. And during that time, one of my missions was to figure out how we could take that intensive approach to the study, not just of existing couples, which people were doing very well at that time, but also use that kind of intensive approach to understand how people form relationships in the first place. And that is an ongoing challenge. Yeah. Did it have anything to do with you being a a guy in his early 20s? (laughs) Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean... So at the time, I remember thinking that there... There was this weird assumption that relationships 
just sort of emerge, right? All of a sudden, there they are, and now you're in a relationship. At least if you look at the science, right? So there was the science of attraction, which is all about strangers in a laboratory. The good studies are about strangers in a laboratory. There are also studies where you're reading vignettes and you're reading descriptions of people. That's the majority of studies out there that look at attraction. The best ones will introduce strangers to each other and then after 30 minutes say goodbye and you never see them again. Mm -hmm. Now... We don't know anything about what happens until you're willing to say, I'm in a relationship with this person and I'm willing to be in a study where you can ask me questions about it. There's that whole giant gap of time that we know very little about. We knew almost nothing about it 15 years ago when I entered grad school. And we're still struggling to understand that period of time. Science does sometimes have the most adorable approaches to trying to understand real life situations. Like assuming people are like, oh man, have you seen her vignette? I know, I know. Yeah, (laughs) right, I know. and That's what I'm into. You know, what's so funny about that is that it... (laughs) Scientists are lucky that online dating came onto the scene because it suddenly made a giant swath of research externally valid. (laughs) Whereas before it kind of hadn't been really. Before it was an easy way to study something without bothering to get two people in the same room. So you, you show people photographs, you show people vignettes, and then online dating comes along and now like that's the thing you're studying. So it's this, it's this weird backwards accident, I think. And look, I don't, I don't mean to uh, denigrate that research. I've done a lot of research on profiles and evaluating photographs, and that kind of research makes really important points. And it is not the same thing as trying to figure out how two people go from being strangers to being romantic partners. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I want to know, related to my question of how much did this have to do with you being a guy in your early right, 20s right. is this uh is this something that i think you go into a college and talk to a bunch of uh young people you know i'm i, I try to um, I'm in science communications. Yeah, yeah. Some subjects are an easier sell to the general public than others. I would think relationship stuff, like any of these classrooms would be packed. All sorts of college kids would be would be trying to pursue this area of study. Is it? it is that the case? Is this is this like a cutthroat area to get into, or it sounds like you you spotted some gaps in the fields early on that you were able to explore? Uh, yeah, that that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, there is a tremendous appetite, I would say, for two uh, related fields that are only recently starting to come together more. Um, you know, sort of in a more integrative fashion. One of those fields is the close relationships field, which again, tends to study people once you're in a romantic relationship. That's like that lab that I was in at NYU. The other related field is evolutionary psychology, right? And evolutionary psychology, I think of them as sort of having picked up the mantle when sort of social psychological research on attraction waned in the 70s and 80s. Evolutionary psychology... That was uh, right when it came into the scene. Right, right, right. Right, right. that's when it's sort of... And and they... um, 
they take those ideas and they imbue it with a, a new kind of theoretical richness that had been lacking and that was really valuable. But these are two strains that have sort of existed in this weird tension for a while. Yeah. And evolutionary psychology, again, th this is now broad sweeping generalization, but tended to examine initial attraction more than it examined ongoing relationships, at least classically speaking. So in many universities, you'd find a close relationships class and or you might find an evolutionary psychological class and you'd see people getting interested in those topics. But um, the but yeah, I think I was wondering, A, why aren't these two fields talking to each other? Oh, oh maybe man. it's because the period of time that would sort of bring them together is actually a field of research that almost doesn't exist. Right. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there, there. I mean, there is uh, definitely a lot of, uh, I, I, as someone who, probably, especially early on in this podcast, a big foundation was evolutionary psychology, yeah. but uh, noticing a lot of a lot of headbutting in in the uh, kind of sociology and and evolutionary psychology right. field. Right, and these, these two aren't aren't uh, aren't getting along very well. And frankly, that headbutting I thought was thrilling. Yeah. On both sides, like I wanted to be able to have those kinds of intense arguments with myself. Yeah. That I wanted to really be able to see that there was an aggressive case to be made that there are sex differences here. And I want to see the aggressive case that there are not sex differences here, or there are sex differences here, and they're due to other forces that are not related to the evolutionary factors we're talking about. And again, what was, what was so exciting to me was people um, staking out strong positions. I, yeah. I, I get so bored with, with sort of wishy-washy versions of science. I really like it when there can be sort of strong positions that people can stake out. And then when more data come in, that they can dial back from those strong positions and, and move on to a different position. Yeah. So you were looking at this and you were, and you saw the evolutionary psych people and the sociology people, these two passionate people. And it seems like they're fighting, but you're like, I think you guys got a little something. You wanted to see like what happened when those two made a baby, basically. Sort, like, get, yeah, get a room, yeah. you two. I think you just need to bang it out and get over your differences. Yeah. And, and embrace the differences too. So, so here's one example. And, and this one um, is near and dear to my heart. Now, this is actually not research that I got into in grad school is actually a little bit later. And it has to do with the concept of mate value. Mm -hmm. Okay, so mate value is this idea that um, some people bring more to a mating relationship than others. It is it is uh, sort of founded in the ev psych literature. It's usually based in stable traits that somebody might have, right? So if I'm attractive, I might have high mate value, perhaps because my offspring will be genetically fit. Mm -hmm. Or I might have a lot of resources, and that might increase my mate value. I might have status, and that increases my mate value. Okay, so right. so it's, it's usually this trait-like approach to thinking about 
um, what somebody brings to the table. So, like for example, and this is uh, as some I'm a serial monogamous, and every time I uh, do my three and a half year run, that ends, and then and then there's like this reassessment yep. of mate value that right. I have to undergo. A few years have gone by. Yep. My career is slightly different, uh, up or down, or whatever. My financial situation is right. a little a little bit different. I'm a I'm a maturing uh, man. Is that yep. For some people, right, right, right. That might that might help. Okay. That might help. That might and, a little bit. Yeah. And like uh, like the the last time, um, yeah. my my last girlfriend, I was I had just gone through some big injury and stuff. I was still on a cane. Yeah. Um, at the time, which which oh. can the interesting thing is that that the the human mind isn't great at perceiving what is what is genetic, what is contagious, right. what is a temporary right. injury, and so I also might. Might have been knocked down a notch and and my yeah, level right. I mean, you time, could accessorize but... that cane. I mean, you yeah, could get like a like a diamond yeah. on top or something. Yeah. Nice. Oh, a diamond. yeah, yeah, I yeah, think right, I'm right. A yeah, diamond okay. On top, but maybe like a cool dragon. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> or there something less ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and that and that increases my maybe. So so now yeah. I'm I'm single reassessing. And now I have two feet that work again. Yep, and yep. I have stand up science shows taken up. This podcast is coming along. Yeah, all right. I might have. So this, this is these are the kind of things that you're that you're talking about when when you're talking about mate value. Exactly. Okay. And the other piece that was a little bit tricky to integrate with this way of thinking about mate value is that once people actually get involved in a stable relationship, wasn't clear to me that their relationship partner was cued into these sorts of aspects of mate value that we're talking about. So in essence, what I'm suggesting is that if you go to a bar and you're trying to meet somebody new, you know, accessorizing the cane and, you know, making it clear how well your podcast is doing, it's probably <laughs> going to do some good for you. Yeah. But once you're in a relationship, it's not clear to me that the cane and the podcast success is going to matter as much. Right. Well, this is something that I have to think about all the time because I'm I'm out I'm traveling on the road and like I go into a show, uh, I get on stage and I put and Shane Shane gets up there. Yeah. And right. Shane, or should I say Shane Shane? Shane Sta- Shane. Yeah. Stage Shane. Stage. Yeah. It'd be funny yeah, right, if right. I called myself <laughs> Shane Shane. That I'm. That was a happy. I thought you meant like there. like the real Shane, but you actually meant the opposite. I, I yeah, meant yeah, yeah, the yeah. Stage Shane. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 the. Uh, I mean, it's I'm pretty genuine on stage, but it's still not exactly who I am. Yeah, yeah sure. Podcast Shane's a different person as well. Yeah. We all have these many hats that yeah. we wear in life, and uh, I get on on stage and I'm funny and likable and all those. Hopefully, if the night goes yeah, yeah, well, yeah. you know, and uh, yeah, you know, I get scientists on. That's very impressive. I get to sound smart <laughs> and. Also, I, you know, I'm renting a car, so I have a new vehicle. Yeah. I'm, I'm staying like in an Airbnb or in a nice hotel or something yeah. like that. And so, like, uh, my mate value seems pretty high in that very specific right. because, because a girl hasn't seen my bank account yet. My girl hasn't seen, uh, my yeah, girl, right, right, she, right, hasn't, right. she hasn't seen like that I'm technically homeless. Yep, right, yeah, right, right, now. right. right. <laughs> so, so, like, technically uh, homeless. Yeah, that's good. I, yeah. I am, yeah. So, 
So this, this is, you know, this this is something that uh, a, a lot of times, like like you're saying, yeah. you meet someone at a bar, uh, you know, you're you're trying to make assessments based on this limited amount of information. Then you end up in a relationship and find out like, oh, I just banged a homeless man. Right. <laughs> and that, and if that's the case, uh, people might... Uh, have a negative reaction but i would also add that other things are going to emerge in the meantime so one way that we've tackled this question is we've looked at how much agreement is there about whether or not somebody is desirable about sort of whether or not somebody has mate value because what i would argue is that mate value the concept relies on uh, it relies on consensus. It requires that people have some sort of shared agreement and meaning about what it is for you to be up uh, on stage and be likable and sort of have these qualities, right? Mm-hmm. So while you're up there and you're sort of displaying yourself for the world, there's agreement about Shane's level of mate value. Mm-hmm. But then a funny thing often happens, which is you get to know people. And you start seeing them in different contexts, and you start having your own idiosyncratic reactions to how that person acts in this context or how that person acts in this context. So, for example, you go to play a show, and a friend that you haven't seen in a few years of the opposite sex happens to be there, and she's seeing the same Shane on the stage technically, but she also has a lot of other background knowledge about you. And maybe that intersects with what she's seeing in a way that makes you more appealing or less appealing than what everybody else in the audience is seeing. Yeah, so I mean, some ladies might see me on stage and be like, "Well, this dude's a narcissist who's like real self-involved and yeah, thinks yeah, he's yeah. like a you know bigger deal than he actually is," and that sort of thing. There's the same exact situation can look very different through different right, sets of eyes. right. And so what we found is that the le- the length of acquaintance, how long people know each other, affects those sorts of judgments. That people, as you get to know each other, as people get to know each other better, they start agreeing less about how desirable somebody is. In other words, what your mate value is, is clearest when you first meet somebody. And as you get to know them better, your your mate value starts to become harder to harder to see, becomes more obscured. And people's reactions to you start becoming more and more idiosyncratic. Mm. So what this means then, and we've shown this uh, in a few studies, is that if I get people who know you quite well to evaluate how desirable is Shane as a romantic partner, how desirable, you know, or even things like that seem very straightforward, like how attractive is Shane, you will see remarkably little agreement Hmm. on those sorts of judgments. So once people get to know you well, you are likely to have a network of, in your case, opposite sex, friends and acquaintances, some of whom are secretly pining for you, and some of whom like you as a friend but that's pretty much it it's that that variance grows over time which we interpret that to mean that mate value starts to matter less as you get to know somebody over time hmm okay i'm just a hair confused let me see if i can recap this 
Okay, so 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 I get that I get that I get the idiosyncratic idiosyncrasy that was the a idiosyncrasy yeah <laughs> of of people being into totally different things yeah, yeah, and yeah. having these different types and that makes all sorts of sense yeah. and that's the you know one of the good reasons to have a podcast and cast a real wide net out there yep. and then you find uh, there happens to be some lady in like cincinnati or something like that that's like just some perfect right and like right really, right, 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 really right click and uh but i don't i don't quite get the second part that you're saying that the mate value doesn't matter can you can you restate that yeah, yeah absolutely so imagine um think about it this way you uh everybody arrives at camp it's the first week of camp and everybody's sizing each other up in that context, mate value is going to matter a lot. And if you know the campfire is going and people are getting together that night, that first night of camp or that second night of camp, basically people are going to sort by mate value. Mm-hmm. Okay, the hot people are going to get with the other hot people, right? And maybe the less hot people are going to get with the less hot people. Dumpy people need love too. They do. They absolutely do. And I'm <laughs> very happy for them slash us. <laughs> Now, fast forward, it's eight weeks into camp. That strong sorting on mate value will likely have declined because what has happened in the interim is you have uh, the opportunity for more idiosyncrasy to grow and develop. So the super hot guy that we all agreed, he was super hot and super desirable on day one. By day 40... Now opinions are divergent. Some people still think he's great, and some people are like, "Like that guy thinks he's funny. He's not funny. He's and he's like into boy bands, right. oddly enough. Like what dude is like yeah. so obsessed with boy? They're exactly. Like, there's some like exactly. ridiculous. But but isn't yeah. that that's what I'm saying? Is well, I guess I'm not saying it because I haven't said it yet. <laughs> but what, what I'm thinking, yeah, right, is. Isn't this just still mate value on a different level? Like I get you're you're saying you're saying physical mate value. I, I get that that falls away after yeah, yeah, a while. Yeah. You're into one of you is into Game of Thrones, another is into some other. I don't know what else is out there. Game of Thrones is the only thing that's important, <laughs> if you ask me. But <laughs> right um, now, that is true. <laughs> yeah. But I hear there's other yeah. TV shows to, that are worth being into, and it. But isn't that still like, isn't that just discovering different underlying? Yes. Um. So, all? right. So, another way of thinking about the mate value concept is you could define it in a way that it's not about individual differences, right? That it's not about some people have it and some people don't. And you can talk about mate value as, okay, but what is the value that you have as a mate for me specifically? Right. And so if we talk about it that way, now we're starting to incorporate the idiosyncratic elements of attraction into the construct. So that so what you could argue is that um, if if mate value, if part of being a valuable mate, is being compatible, is being idiosyncratic, then of course, as you get to know somebody better, you're better assessing those things. That is also very true. In fact, what is so interesting, we we showed this in one study, if you just ask regular people, what do you think mate value means? Uh, Almost nobody mentions popularity, 
right? Which is the way scientists traditionally have thought about it, right? Mid value, you're popular. That's not what people say. People say, well, I, I know somebody's a valuable mate because we're really compatible and they mm. make me a better person and we are really going to connect in ways we don't connect with other people. So you are exactly tapping into, I think, the uh, the sort of lay understanding of the concept, but it's very right. different no. than the like you have it or you don't, at least at a given moment in time. I understand what you're yeah. saying now. So yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this, there's this different... Uh, like like some sort of universal mate value which is bringing people in for a study showing them pictures of faces having them rate which right. is the most attractive is a very different thing than compatibility right. which is now uh, now it's like how someone smells has this different uh, major histocompatibility component. Right. The type right. of uh, hobbies, like if one person's into rock climbing, the other person hates heights and could never imagine doing that sort right, of thing. Exactly. And and so so yeah, I guess I guess now I'm I'm in agreement that that isn't necessarily mate value. If you're thinking of mate value as kind of this universal sort of thing which is like what I, I would say more of what like almost a Hollywood definition or something yeah, you're, right. you're putting someone on a screen you want this kind of universal uh, right. appeal and that is very different than like when you just click with someone because your sense of humor is exactly the same it's not even that both or one of you has a great sense of humor right it's just that both of you find like wooden shoes to be the funniest right. thing in the, uh, the <laughs> right. world or something like that. Right, exactly. And those those compatibility elements start to take on increased importance over time, right? So, you know, in the beginning, when we're looking at someone, everybody who's sort of looking at and trying to understand that person sees and feels something where there is a, a consensus component to it. But as we start seeing different acts and as we start interpreting things with our own, you know, idiosyncratic lens, those opinions uh, eventually start to, uh, start to diverge over time. And I think I would even go so far as to say that... Um, we may have been, this might be part of the design, right? This is in no way a refutation of evolutionary principles. We may be designed to find our own version of the most valuable mate within the very limited pool of potential mates we would have encountered ancestrally. We didn't have hundreds of people we could have been choosing from, you know, when we were living on the savanna. We were living in bands of 150 people, many of whom were very closely related to you. So how many people exactly were your age that you were going to have a you know, chance to form any sort of mateship with? I mean, are we even in the double digits? Like, I'm not quite sure. So right. the idea that you would... Uh, spend a lot of time searching for the most valuable mate seems potentially l as a less adaptive strategy than uh, sort of finding compatibility and having an opportunity to build a strong bond with somebody that you really clicked with. I mean, do you think any of this is like, you know, you're building it. So, before I say this, I, I will say that I know that it seems 
my understanding of, of what I've heard from the science of relationships in the past is that the idea of this opposites attract stuff that's in pop culture is not really so much the case. But but do you think that there is a little bit of, um, you know, you're forming this partnership, figuring out these like kind of delegating of responsibilities. No one person can manage everything really well right, in life right. and finding just like a company would finding these different little pieces of the puzzle that match together. Right. Well. Right. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, like a specialization yeah. that two people develop over time. So it's definitely true that if you uh, have a battery, you know, questionnaire battery, and you assess things about me and assess things about, you know, some potential partners, uh, you are not going to find that, like, oh, my personality on some dimensions is the opposite of her personality. So we're really going to click. But here's the thing similarity assessed in exactly the same way, also tends not to do very much. In fact, those sorts of matching metrics, at least assessed before two people meet each other, tend to be pretty bad predictors of whether two people are romantically going to be into each other. Hmm. The alternative possibility is that as people start seeing what's there, as they start forming a relationship, and, and, and sometimes when I say forming a relationship, what I mean is, we like hang out together sometimes in groups of friends, right? We're just spending more time together and getting to know each other. But we discover that we're both, you know, into gardening and something you say actually gets me more into it than I was before. And then we start talking about Game of Thrones and, oh, wow, you have some interesting theories about where they're going with the show. And that gets me more into it than before. So we're actually building similarities as the relationship develops. And those things become exciting. Mm. Put me in some other relationship, it's not going to be Game of Thrones and gardening that are going to be the two things that are going to get us to connect. It's going to be different things. So I think it's it's um, processes that like that that um, are, are why we have the experience of discovering similarities and also discovering specializations in relationships and that those things feel like they end up being very important but why it's hard to assess them in a vacuum and expect them to predict anything before two people have had a chance to start building that connection. Hmm. So what kind of um, uh, what, what kind of research are you doing? Like specifically, uh, what kind of studies have you been doing to evaluate some of this stuff? Um, so one thing that we are very interested in uh, attempting to document, and this is something that we've been uh, trying to tackle in a number of different ways is trying to be there to catch relationship formation as it happens. There are a handful of other researchers out there that are trying to tackle this problem. I'd say there's maybe four or five teams out there that are trying to do this. One reason it is very challenging is because it is a very low base rate event, meaning that if you have a sample of single people um, and you assess them over the course of several months, the odds that they are going to start a relationship at some point during those several months is pretty low. So I'll, I'll give you a couple examples of some of the challenges that we've had. I got into 
studying speed dating when I was in grad school. So we ran a lot of speed dating studies uh, where we would bring, um, it was, they were mainly heterosexual events. We did run one event. We had enough interest from gay men. We ran one, men, one event for gay men, but most of the events were heterosexual. So these are people that are getting a chance to meet each other for four minutes. Uh, if they're into each other, they both say yes to each other, and then we would sort of give them each other's contact information, and they would have a chance to meet offline. And so we had the insight that, well, let's follow these people. Because here they were, strangers. They met for four minutes. And these people are going to connect. And they're going to go on coffee dates. And then they're going to go on real dates. And then they're going to go to a party. And they're going to hook up. And maybe something's going to happen. Or maybe something's not going to happen. But we want to assess these things. So we had... Uh, we, so we tracked them over time. We asked them about these relationships as they were forming and developing. And over the months that followed, they went on coffee dates, but that was kind of where it stopped. Mm -hmm. Only about 5% of the people who took part in speed dating ever went on to form any, even a casual relationship with somebody that, we introduce them to at speed dating. And so one thing we thought was, well, maybe speed daters are weird. Maybe these people have no social skills, right? I mean, I guess they needed us to help them meet people. So maybe this was part of the problem. And so um, this is late in grad school. I was in a kickball league in Chicago. And this is a group of people. It's on the order of 200 people. And, uh, Everybody would get together at a bar after the kickball games on Wednesday nights and, you know, drink a reasonable amount. There was sort of lots of inter-team mixing and socializing and drinking games. And I thought, well, okay, I, I mean, I think people are forming relationships here. So let me survey these guys and, and, and these women and see if uh, relationships are forming in this case. And uh, over about the same period of time, it was about 7%. <laughs> So it's still remarkably low. So meeting a stranger and then forming a relationship is not something that happens terribly often. Hmm. So what we have been trying to do these days is get people um, to construct some detailed histories of their relationships. Sort of, how did you meet the person? What were the various steps that took place as this relationship was forming. For some people, this is a pretty quick process. For some people, they meet and there's an, an immediate spark and then they exchange phone numbers and the next day they get together and by the weekend, things are happening. Mm -hmm. That's less common than the, we met once, and then I saw you again two and a half months later. And then, oh, we met again in a friend's house two and a half months after that. <laughs> really? And the average amount of time between when you meet somebody and when you wow. say we are a couple is about a year. Holy that's crap. Yeah, now that's the average, right? So the, I've already, the, yeah. I moved yeah. in months ago. Right, 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 right. <laughs> like, I, right. Am, I yeah. am a fast, I'm an impulsive, yep. spontaneous person. Yep, yep. I, I'm fast-tracking everything here. I, I And I, I mean, most of my, I, I guess it's like a little embarrassing that most of my <laughs> relationships were just like a drunken hookup that then became something yep. uh, and, a bit more. And that's perfectly respectable, 
route that yeah. also works. Yeah, that's a respectable right. route. Very respectable. <laughs> that's what I'm. And an an the uh, you know the other thing that is happening is that people have networks of again if we're talking about heterosexuals you got networks of opposite sex friends and acquaintances who are all themselves moving in and out of relationships and so when somebody becomes single what they often do is they look at that network and they sort of take stock of where it is right now these five people over here these are people i've known for a little while and on oh, and two of them i kind of like and like oh look they're both single now like i should reach out to them and see what's happening but the important element and i think the major insight that we've been having with trying to study this is that if i wanted to be there at the beginning to know why these two were really appealing to you i missed that cuz that was years ago that you met those people um so so that's been that's been one thing that we have learned that I think is pretty important about getting about sort of asking people to reconstruct those histories. Another thing that we've looked at with this reconstruction method is that we ask people to reconstruct their long-term relationships. We ask people to reconstruct their flings too. We ask people to reconstruct their one-night stands. And those relationships look different, of course. Um, they don't have the kind of attachment that long-term relationships have. They don't have a lot of caregiving. They don't have sort of the maximal self-disclosure that you often see in long-term relationships. But if you zero in on just the beginning, meaning you met and then you hung out a little bit more with friends maybe, and then you spent a little time one-on-one, if you look at that stretch of time, there is no way to differentiate what became the long-term relationship and what just became a hookup. Even the people that you had a one-night stand with, if what we mean by one-night stand is you had sex or you hooked up one time and never again, you there there is nothing we can use to know ahead of time that that would have been a one-night stand until the part where you didn't talk to them again. Mm-hmm. That is when we know. That right. a thing is a one night stand when hmm. it goes the way it goes, and then you move on from there. Hmm. Yeah, I have the opposite thing. Okay, all okay. The time where I'm like, this is going to be a one night stand. Yeah, exactly. And then afterwards, I, I think that's. It, it I think goes, it goes forward. Right. Right. And that is exactly part of the predictive problem because whatever it was in your head that you were thinking before this happened, like this is going to happen once and it's not going to go anywhere. And then it does what that, that is part of the really murky, unclear signal that is usually the case prior to when, you know, what we've seen in our data is that when things start to get physical on average, that's when people are starting to figure out where they want this thing to go. Mm -hmm. Right. And, I think one thing that I find sort of exciting and what sort of turns the short-term, long-term idea on its head is that what people seem to be doing is they take the good hookups, right? The good sexual experiences, and they say, I want to do that again. And that becomes the long-term thing. It's the ones that are just sort of meh. Mm Mm-hmm where you say, I guess I'd do that part of it again, but I do not want this to escalate further. And 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 I think ultimately that's what's happening, right? So like the most enjoyable sex, the most enjoyable hookups that people have 
the the thing you see over and over and over again is that when that happens, they want to do it again. And lo and behold, six months later, you're in a long-term relationship with the person. Mm. Hmm. It's interesting. So how, I mean, <laughs> that is a tricky issue right. then, with, th- with things like, well, with anything, but especially with something like a dating app where right. you're trying like if you don't know if it's going to work out until after you had sex anyway so i, I mean yeah huh. i mean i i i fear that sometimes like i like i go through this i like put myself in a position of unintentionally advocating for like just have sex and like see what happens like <laughs> yeah. maybe it'll be great maybe it'll be terrible yeah and you're like, not saying that i, I recognize am. right there you go <laughs> <laughs> i mean yes and uh the sex is not the only way to figure out if you are um if you are compatible with somebody but there really is no substitute, I would argue, for face-to-face interaction, and there is no substitute for time and having the opportunity to see if compatibility is there and perhaps build in compatibility, right? So sort of construct a history that allows the relationship to move forward or not. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think those are those are important elements too. When people go online dating, they spend a whole heck of a lot of time reviewing dating profiles and trying to find people that they think they're going to click with. Um, there isn't much evidence, you know. There's pretty good evidence that when you look at a profile, you're going to be interested in the people that match your idiosyncratic ideals that match what you're looking for. But we see time and time again that whenever people go on to have a face-to-face interaction, that what people say they're looking for is no longer a very good predictor of how much you're actually going to like that person. So it's more or less a coin flip then of whether or not this person, you know, you're going to find this person appealing or not. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, you can... It's easy to like look at a picture and be like, that person's really hot. Right, right. But it is every single time that I find myself into someone, it's usually like a very different type than I'd been into. Yeah. And it's like this new discovery of this thing that I was interested in that I didn't even necessarily know right. I was like looking for or right. anything like that. Right, right. It's, it, it, and it's some, some of it is, you know, the broader social psychological literature tells us about the limits of self-knowledge and, right, so many attempts to articulate and figure out what it is you like requires you to engage in the kind of abstraction that's really challenging for people to do, right? So for you to articulate what you're looking for, I I'm asking you to do a task that we would not ask other animals to do, which is to form a coherent explanation of the kind of partner you're looking for, as opposed to, I see that, and that is a thing I know I'm into, right? Mm-hmm. That is a person, that is an, you know another animal, and like that is the thing that I'm going to pursue. And humans, for all the good things that our minds do for us, it's also very easy to get stuck in our heads, right? Stuck in these ideas of what it is that's going to make us happy. Hmm. What about what about deal breakers? What about when people know that they have deal breakers? You go out there like yeah. I 
I don't want kids or marriage. Yep. That eliminate and eliminates like ninety percent of the yeah. population right. of my right, dating right, right, pool right. right off the bat for me. But then there's things like uh, I don't want someone who's religious. But I've met girls that are like I'm like oh well they have a take yeah. on spirituality that I guess yeah. I could go along with. Like Judaism's pretty cool. Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm be into this. Yeah. Um, well, Judaism uh, yeah, yeah, right. is like a whole other weird <laughs> yeah. thing. It's like barely even like it's more of a practice, than right, 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 than right. Like a belief system. I <laughs> yeah. feel like. Oh, but who doesn't love a good bar mitzvah? <laughs> um, the so so here's one thing I don't want to be glib about because frankly I haven't studied it, and I don't think anybody's really studied it well. And it's um, things like uh, demographics. What if I really introduce you to some people that you would never have met otherwise? I introduce you to some people who were from, let's say, very low socioeconomic status, people that you would not normally encounter, people from very different backgrounds, people who don't speak English. Am I really saying that, like, I could easily fix you up with some of them? I don't, I don't want to go too far beyond the data. So for some people, those things might be deal breakers. You might say a deal breaker is... I really need to be with somebody who speaks English. And I would know of no data where I could argue with that. Mm-hmm. But we do have some studies where we ask people not to fill out some measure a researcher has created, all these traits that are desirable, but where I say, Shane, you tell me what are the three things a partner must have? What are the three most important things to you? Okay. So you come up with three things. And then... I assess that you know, we do this with single people and people who are in relationships, but let's say with a sample of people who are single. Now, here are some people in your life that you know. Uh, to what extent do they have those three qualities? And how much would you like to date each of them? And not too surprisingly, you are definitely more romantically interested in the people that have those three qualities than the people who don't. So that seems promising, right? That seems like, yeah. You know what you want? You want those three things. Indeed, you are more into the women that have those three things. So here's the problem. If you ask me what three things I care about, and I come up with three different things, and I ask you, Shane, how much do those ladies have those three things? The three things I came up with, and how much are you into them? The strength of the association is exactly the same. So it doesn't matter whether... The important trades come from your head or from some random other person's head. From a movie you saw or something. Right, 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 right. It, it, we like positive stuff, right? We like people who are attractive and we like people who are funny and we like people who are warm and we like people who are intelligent. We like all these things. But if you say you like intelligence and I say I like attractiveness... The reality is intelligence on average is going to appeal to both of us the same. Mm-hmm. And attractiveness is going to appeal to both of us the same. So so deal breakers in the form of, you know, some uh, demographic variables, again, there's really no research on that. And I totally get um, people have strong impulses that those things really do matter. But when it comes to things like traits, attributes, like imagining what your ideal partner is like, 
people have these very strong ideas, but it doesn't seem to have that sort of distinctive discriminating power that you'd want it, that you'd want it to have if you were going to rely on it to be picking partners. What about what about the uh, instead of deal breaker instead of like three you know you have these kind of broad things of like oh someone into board games eating out and travel or something like yeah that. yeah yeah and uh, okay uh, that's the, but what about people with uh with like a very very specific this is i sometimes wish that i had like one of these very strange specific like sort of fetishist the type not even just set but like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, being like well i just like a oh, girl who can yo-yo just yeah. like really <laughs> does it like, for me because then you right, can like right. really get out there that's very specific it's, it's, be like okay this girl knows how to yo-yo yep. i don't know what it is about about d- bouncing that yo-yo around on the string that just yep. it, it, it just gets me going in this weird way i don't um right so i don't want to act like so if you say you're really into girls who yo-yo, and then you and then you like introduce me to a bunch of girls who yo-yo, am I gonna be like, hell yeah, like this is awesome? I mean, maybe I maybe I'm gonna be like, I I see what Shane's talking about. These girls are great. Uh, you are not gonna be into yo-yo. Probably I implanted that idea. Probably not. Although it sounds sounds delightfully <laughs> to the early 20th century. It's, um, it's the single yeah. weirdest yeah. example that I yeah. could come up yep. with. Um, so, early 20th century. So the, but I do think that those, um, those are the kinds of interests that, again, for most people, we have the luxury of selecting between as we're, as we're considering somebody. So, for example, so to go back to the example from earlier about um, somebody who gardens and is into Game of Thrones, I think that was the example, that that those could be two reasons why I am really into my current partner, right? So yo-yoing might be a reason that you really went for this particular woman over here. But yo-yoing or the lack thereof would not be a strong predictor it would not be a, st- a strong attribute it wouldn't be top of mind as you considered other women at another point in time mm-hmm. so it is not that yo-yoing makes women appealing it's yo-yoing makes her appealing and if that's the way we think about partners and attributes it's um it's going to be very challenging to find regularities in let's say how i approach how i evaluate different women or how you approach how you evaluate different women because it means and this you can see this is a good thing or a bad thing but it means that the the criteria right the the standards are shifting depending on who the target is so this person is funny for telling a joke somebody else tells the same joke it's not funny and right so it's it's shifting standards depending on who the person is and that that is if that's what people are doing and the more and more data i see i'm starting to see that this is um perhaps a very strong explanation for what people are relying on but it does make romantic attraction pretty challenging to study 
you know, I'm I'm thinking about we mentioned our our evolutionary past with having, you know, in the double digits of right. choices out right. there. This is obviously a very different environment that right. we are living in right. these days and with dating apps and everything else. And, and relationships are now like you can have a virtual relationship with someone in uh, Paraguay right. who is, uh, you know, you you two are playing World of Warcraft. Yeah, like I can be a wizard. A, like, that sounds great. This this is, it's such a strange, I mean, how the human brain yeah. that evolved and spent, you know, spent millions of years yeah. in this you know, very specific environment, not necessarily specific, but completely different environment than our modern world. I wonder if it is it making things maybe this is like a false compare by saying things are like more complicated now. But but because because I'm sure there's all sorts of complications of yeah. only having 10 people to pick from right. and right, having right, to right. settle and right. then make that work. Right. That's incredibly complicated right. as well. Right. But um, I wonder, you, you know, we, we sometimes have, have talked about like in behavioral economics, the idea of some of this like choice paralysis right, right, stuff, exactly, stuff that happens exactly. where you have, you have 20 different jam, but which by the way, I'm not sure this study has, uh, replicated. It's held up well. Yeah. I think there is but, a meta analysis that's sort of, let's assume for, right, the, right. <laughs> for, for the purpose of this point that, yeah. that the jam study is right. everything that it first thought the, the, it was there's going a, to be. There's a case to be made that, that for some people, right? So for maximizers, <laughs> these are people that, that really do not do well when you give them many, many options. Right. Right. So, right. so yeah. sometimes just having the the three three to five jams to pick from yeah. uh, gets people entices people they try okay i like i like grape perfect you give them 20 and they're like gosh this is too but how do yep. you how do you choose you know what screw this I'm out of here. I'm yeah. not even getting jam. I'm sick of thinking about jam. Right. Do you think? <laughs> do you think that maybe uh, there might be because at the same time that there's all this choice, yeah. it seems like this seems like the single and and there's so many confounds here. Mm-hmm. But but this also seems like the the loneliest time in human history. At the same time, yeah. it seems like people are really isolating themselves yeah. and everything too. And 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 I. I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily related or causative that 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 this abundance of choice is like somehow subconsciously yeah. causing people to be like, I don't even want to deal with that. But yeah, um, I mean, but choice. Then, yeah, yeah cho- I mean, choice is something that people it to to sustain a relationship. People they have to turn off the choice. Right. They have to find those people less appealing or the relationship can't sustain itself. Yeah, you have to... That, yeah. that, mate, uh, that mate retention sub-self that right. I was talking gotta, about on stage right, last right, night right, really right. has to take over so that that turn mate off acquisition, the acquisition sub-self, sub-self right. is, uh, stops searching around for right. for um, people, yeah. But there's, there's also some studies out there um, showing that even as you are starting to get into somebody that you'll start shutting down 
the sort of noticing the alternatives too. So it doesn't just happen for people who've been dating for a long time. It can also start to happen pretty early on. So that's an important mechanism, I think, in sort of developing a focus on one person. I mean, one thing I alluded to last night very briefly is this idea that um, if you go into a situation where you are clearly willing to date anybody, like I got five people I'm thinking about, like you want to be number six, you, nobody likes that <laughs> on the receiving end. Nobody likes to think that they're part of a lineup and, and and you know, they get to choose or be chosen along with all of these folks up here. Like people like to feel special. So part of shutting down the alternatives is part of what's creating that feeling of specialness that helps the relationship get off the ground. But you're surrounded by this technology. My, you know, the online dating website is 20 more matches for me. There might be somebody better than the person that I messaged earlier this morning that definitely is, you know, going to make it harder for people to focus. Mm -hmm. And I think if you get stuck in that loop for too long, that can probably start feeling pretty isolating. Hmm. Hmm. This is so interesting, man. I It's fun to study. I, I'll it's tell nice you, work. I feel like, I mean, maybe next time I'm in town, we'll just have to have you on for another episode. Sure, sure, I feel sure. Like I could just talk about this stuff forever, but we are running out of time. I still want to... Uh, maybe we'll put a little bow on it or, or there's a couple last things that, that sure, you'd sure. like to mention before we leave. But I do want to make sure I have my guests each week plug a charity of their choice, if you had one in mind. I do. I would like to plug the charity Donors Choose. So that's donorschoose.org. And um, this is a great website that allows people to contribute to uh, to schools in their local area. You can sort of search by your zip code and see what teachers in your area need to either enhance a scientific curriculum for their students, uh, do new art projects with their students, get musical instruments for their students. I mean, these were all things that I had in my school uh, growing up. They were really important for me in my development. And this is a way for people to give back to schools right in their community and sort of enhance those, you know, the science and the arts and, and those uh, uh, sorts of uh, instructional materials. That is awesome. And speaking of supporting things in your local community, guys, my recent partner, uh, I'm very excited about Libro.fm, is a new audiobook company who, just like your uh, regular uh, other audiobook companies, same price, same everything else, um, they they work through your local bookstore so your so the the audiobook is downloaded through your local bookstore so they get a cut so it's a way of supporting your local bookstore so you can go to libro.fm offer code here we are to get three months for the price of one and uh, get a slice of that so you can help me out and um, but yeah donors choose is a classic many people have have mentioned it and it's terrific um, all right so lastly Oh man, we are running out of time. I have what I'm just like what what big can of worms <laughs> do I have time to uh, um all right. This is dating apps. Yep. I I mean, I talked to you. I see your set at Stand Up Science or your talk at Stand Up Science last night and I think do they even work? 
in any way like it it seem it seems like a lot of your work yeah, yeah, shows yeah. certainly exposes a lot of flaws not to say that they aren't don't have benefits right but. right i think i can give you the 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 bullet point summary of what the apps do well and what they don't do well so what they do well is opening up possibilities beyond your existing social networks for meeting people you wouldn't have met otherwise. Um, the quantity challenge aside, right? And, and of course, there are potentially problems with having too many options, too many choices out there. There's also something that's very cool about being able to meet somebody and effectively, if you click, hop to a brand new social network right? Meet a whole bunch of people that you wouldn't have met otherwise. That's a really cool thing that didn't really, that would have been very hard to do prior to dating apps. Usually, you meet your friends of friends of friends, and your, you know, your networks are always sort of merging and moving with other people's networks, and that's how you're encountering new people. But how fun is it that dating apps allow us to hop to this totally new planet of people that we wouldn't have met otherwise and, you know, gives us all sorts of new opportunities to expand our interests, expand our minds, etc. So that's great. There are challenges associated with that. For example, you find somebody in your existing social network you probably already have some approval unless there's a lot of dating within your network that actually could cause some problems. But that means you're not just winning over this new person. You're probably got to win over their friends too. Mm -hmm. That's a new challenge. Right. Dating apps do a very good job of, of, of sort of opening up the space in that sense. Matching algorithms, not so much. <laughs> Matching algorithms, um, we've done some work with machine learning, uh, this was spearheaded by my former postdoc, Samantha Joel, um, and what she found is that with a machine learning algorithm, this is probably what, um, you know, a dating company like eHarmony would be doing behind the scenes, although we don't really know, but what machine learning does is it finds the most robust and replicable patterns in a set of data, you know, you can run it on one data set and try to apply it to a new data set and sort of see what conclusions maintain. Uh, generally speaking, uh, you can use machine learning to figure out who's going to be desperate or not. You can use machine learning and it'll tell you who's going to be popular or not, but it's not very good at telling you anything about compatibility. Uh, it's not going to be able to take a lot of information that you might have written down on a questionnaire ahead of time and information that a number of women would have written down on a questionnaire ahead of time and tell you which women you're going to be uniquely compatible with once you actually meet and start forming a relationship. It can tell you who the popular women are and maybe you're popular and, you know, it maybe it'll tell you, you know, it'll try to set up the popular people or something along those lines. But in terms of getting beyond desperation and popularity, there's really not much evidence that a matching al algorithm can do all that much. I mean, it is just nice to know that there's people out there working to help out popular people. Right. Because I, yeah. they, they really need all the help for the, <laughs> that, that they can so get. So there was once a theory. I, I'm sort of saying this is, this is more hearsay than anything else, but that the way that online dating companies that used algorithms would juke their stats was that they would use questionnaires to identify who the unpopular people were likely to be and then they would say sorry we don't have anything for you uh. and okay so right but now like right 
we needed more help for the people that are already doing well. Like it's sort of the opposite. It's like, it's the opposite of a charity (laughs) for helping people find relationships. Again, that's hearsay because all of this stuff is shrouded in mystery. Uh, We don't really know what the heck is going on behind the scenes, but um, from what we've seen, it's, it's not likely that compatibility, the true promise uh, is likely to be predicted until dating companies start assessing how you feel about another person once you've actually met them. Once people start to get face-to-face evaluations of like, I clicked with this person, this person I went on three dates, went pretty well, the sex was good, the sex was not good, and I'm not arguing for a surveillance state, but that is the kind of data that I think would be required to really push toward you know a future where there's a compatibility algorithm. But we're nowhere near that, and I don't want to encourage the surveillance state to move in that direction necessarily. Well, this was a fantastic conversation. Let's yeah. do it again sometime. Yeah, let's do it. This yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being on the show, Paul Eastwick. And thanks for Eastwick. Did I say yeah. I said like Eastwick? It had like a little inflection, but I kind of liked it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a little Gaelic, maybe? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you, Paul, for joining me. And thank you, listeners, for being such a wonderful, curious people. And we'll talk with you next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast at the Cincinnati Zoo. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Cincinnati Zoo, for just such an amazing experience. I got a whole behind-the-scenes thing. I got... Oh, it was uh, just terrific. Um, and we, this is, I, I recorded two episodes there and, and both really, really good episodes. The, the first one we have with, with two, two people there, uh, from the Cincinnati zoo and man, it made me think that I got to do more episodes where I have two guests on at the same time because it was just i loved the flow of it and it was uh, just really entertaining um so looking forward to putting that one out next week libro.fm for all your audiobook needs same price same catalog as other audiobook companies except your audiobooks come to you from your local independent bookstore they partnered with hundreds of indie bookstores so and and they get the uh a split of the profits so it's a way of supporting them it's a way of supporting this show by putting in offer code here we are to get three months for the price of one i forget if i plugged this uh, i'm trying to plug different audiobook suggestions but in case i i didn't do this one before uh, the book objection discussed morality and the law by um carlton patrick and deborah lieberman deborah lieberman i had on the podcast last year i i've been i know if you don't have a stitcher premium where you can get all of the old ones for free i'm i'm trying to we are going to put 10 of the past podcasts 10 of my favorite past podcasts um so that on any platform they're available and that's one of the episodes that will definitely be on um on that list one of it just absolutely blind mind-blowing blind mowing i almost said 
um that's how mind blowing it is and so yeah check out or i mean i'm just plugging this book genuine um generally if if you aren't into audiobooks and you're into reading great get objection disgust morality and the law holy crap guys it is such an incredible book so check that out and also micro meditation stuff coming along jamaica next january um they uh, i've been super impressed because you guys have been contacting me and um i think as soon as we get the details up which i don't know why it's taken <laughs> this long at this point but part of this is my fault i've been not uh i've been bad with emailing lately as i've been on a little bit of a personal journey and disconnecting from the internet a little bit more but um next january in jamaica psilocybin retreat uh, i think as soon as we have the tickets up about half of those tickets are going to be gone um almost immediately from all of the all of the interest that you guys have shown so super pumped about that it's going to be a absolutely wonderful time and yeah with that um we'll talk with you guys more next week those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites i can't breathe all you want to feel is misery but everything that i believe you've taken from me all I need, we both know that all I need, I need the love And I can't breathe.